Hello, this is Zach Driscoll welcoming you to the Real Men Podcast. This podcast is specifically designed to equip men of all ages. My dad's heart has always been to build up men to be strong followers of Jesus and future leaders for their families. We want to build men up, not beat men up. For more Bible-centered resources like this, visit realfaith.com slash realmen. Now get ready for this week's Real Men Talk from my dad, Pastor Mark. Welcome to Real Men. Who's excited to be with the guys tonight? Guys not out? Guys not out? For those of you guys that are new, welcome. We love you. We're honored to have you. It's a great joy to have you join with the best men in the valley, period. And uh, my name is Mark, one of the pastors here at the church. And so here's how it works for those of you who are new. On the weekends, we tend to go through books of the Bible. We're in the book of Genesis right now. And here for the men, we really focus on leadership development. And, And here's the big idea. You matter and your family matters, and your marriage matters, and your kids matter, and your grandkids matter, and your life matters, and your legacy matters. And you and I grow up in a world that does nothing to help you or encourage you know how to be the man that God intends for you to be. For the first time in our nation's history, the majority of children born to women under 30 are born out of wedlock. The majority of children growing up today don't even have a father, not even a bad father, not a father. And uh, many who do have a father don't have a great father. And a lot of what we're to learn as men is to be modeled at home by our father. So what happens is you go to school, you can graduate from high school and there's not one class on how to be a man. There's not one class on how to marry a girl. There's not one class on how to raise a kid. And there's actually not much that's very helpful. You don't know how to buy a house, balance a checkbook. Um, There's a lot of things you just don't know. So then you go to college and you realize, well, there's a women's studies degree. Uh, Is there a men's studies degree? No. In fact, uh, there's nothing to teach you how to be a husband, how to be a father, how to be a man, how to be a godly man, how to make an income, how to pay off a debt, how to start a company. Every class you take is just critiquing men who have done things, not teaching men how to do things. And so the result is you grow up and you're not sure, when do I become a man? What do I do as a man? Is it even okay to be a man? And ultimately there is no real hope for men unless they turn to the God of the Bible. He is our father, we are his sons. Even if we didn't learn some things from our earthly father, we can learn all we need to learn from our heavenly father. And he is even a father to the fatherless, the Bible says. And what God does is he raises up men to be sons to carry forth uh, his character and his values across the earth. And so where we're at in the book of Genesis, we look at the first man. So this is where we were last weekend, Genesis chapter three. Our first father is Adam. Chapter one and two of Genesis, he's having great days. He gets along great with God. He gets married, his wife is naked, he's eating fruit. It's a sunny day. He's married to a perfect woman. He's a perfect man. He's in a perfect place. He's having a good day. Uh, The same thing that every guy ever since has just been trying to get back to, like, where do I get back to that naked, perfect marriage, day off sunshine? And that's why many of you moved to Scottsdale. Welcome, it's not here. Um, (laughs) Then in Genesis three, what we see is the fall of the human race, the destruction of human history, and it all starts with our father failing to lead. And the point is simply this, if you won't lead, Satan will. That's the big idea of Genesis chapter three. So what we saw in Genesis three, Adam and Eve are there and God is there and then Satan shows up. And Satan engages the wife, Eve, and the the husband, Adam, says and does nothing. He is a passive, indifferent man, perhaps even a coward. And there are two categories of sin that we looked at, commission and omission. Eve's sin was commission. She did what God said not to do. His sin was omission. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. Much or most of the time that men sin, it is omission. Uh, You're like, you can't, it's like, I didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything. I didn't say anything wrong. We didn't say anything. Well, I, I wasn't even there, right? That was the problem. You were absent and you were supposed to be present. And so we have in Adam this example that as men, we all fall into in various ways and for various lengths of time. And ultimately, this is something that I'm gonna teach you. It's called the doctrine of federal headship. A little bit of theology. Federal is the Latin word for covenant. Uh, You're gonna see as we get into Genesis, God makes a covenant with Noah. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And the, the language of the Bible is that God has a covenant relationship with his people. Anytime there is a covenant, someone is appointed as the head over the covenant and they are responsible for the covenant and the people in the covenant. And so Adam is the father or head of the human race. 
we're all in relationship or covenant with him. And so when he sins, he votes for us all. And this is in the same way, if you have a company and the president of the company makes a decision, true or false, it affects all the employees. I mean, we just saw that with mask mandates or with uh, vaccination requirements. As soon as the head of the company makes a decision, it implicates for good or bad, everyone in the company. The same is true in a country. If it's a king or a president or a prime minister and they make a decision, all the citizens are affected by that. And we've learned that as well. The last few years have been rough and there are leaders making decisions that you and I perhaps would not agree with, but they do have authority. And when they make a decision, it affects us whether we like it or not. And ultimately we are in covenant with Adam. In fact, the language of mankind, um, that first portion of that language, man, that's Adam. And it says in Genesis five that he named the whole human race mankind in the Hebrew, it's literally Adam. So Adam is the name for the human race. He is our head and father. When he made a decision to sin against God, all of us were included in that decision. And the result is that he is responsible and firstly responsible for the fall of humanity. We read this in Romans chapter five. Um, it says this, uh, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Paul is arguing here in Romans 5, 12 through 21. Let me start a bit theoretical and theological and then make it really personal and practical. What he's saying in uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21, there's only two groups of people those who are under Adam's leadership or those who are under Jesus' leadership. Those for whom Adam is head, those for whom Jesus is head. Death, life, condemnation, salvation, imputed um, unrighteousness, imputed righteousness, sinful nature of the Holy Spirit. And that there are only two kinds of categories of people or two kinds of men. Those who are born in Adam or those who are born again in Jesus Christ. The bad news is, is that Adam made a decision for all of us and we deal with it every day. That's why there's a curse. That's why there was a pandemic. That's why there's a supply chain shortage. That's why, that's why there are you know, bad weather patterns all winter around the world. All of that is the result of one guy making a decision and everyone and everything under him was implicated by that decision. The good news, Jesus also made a decision for us. He decided that he would save us, that he would love us, that he would pursue us and that he would forgive us. And he took responsibility for us. And so the big idea is this, when there is a covenant, everyone's in it together and everyone is responsible for the decisions that they make, but the covenant head is firstly responsible. And so I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians eleven three: the head of every man is Christ. So you're in covenant relationship. If you're a Christian, you're in covenant relationship. It's called the new covenant with Jesus Christ. Who's your head? Jesus. So Jesus is my head, meaning he has authority over me. Uh, I am under his um, decision-making. Goes on to say, the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. So in the covenant of marriage, the husband is the head. I'll explain all of this. It gets very misunderstood. And uh, those who misunderstand it, sometimes they, they get very emotional and they respond like a cat does to water. And we'll try and prevent that. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God or God the Father. So what he says is God the Father and God the Son are in a relationship. It's the Trinity. They love each other and they are equal, but the Father is the head. And he says, uh, now in our relationship with Jesus, Jesus is our head. And it also says that Jesus is the head of the church. And then it says in the covenant of marriage, the husband is the head, okay? And what this means is in your life, in your marriage, in your family, with your children, you're in the same position of authority and responsibility as Adam was and you have a different level of responsibility, but you have responsibility nonetheless. So here's the big idea. Um, when you are the head, you are not just responsible for yourself, but the other people in the covenant with you, okay? So when God came looking for Adam, Adam and Eve sinned, we look at this in Genesis three, God 
talked to Satan, held him accountable and responsible for his sin, talked to Eve, told her that she was responsible and accountable for her sin, and he talked to Adam. But who did he talk to first of these three options? Adam. And he he asked the first question God does in human history, and it's the question that, that God has for all of us men. Where are you? Right? If there's a problem in your marriage, where are you? If there's a problem in your business, where are you? If there's a problem with your child or children, where are you? Like, where, where are you? Are, are you present taking responsibility? So even though Eve, we could argue sin first, Adam was held responsible because he's the head of the covenant and everything starts and flows down from leadership. So you start with the person who is responsible and then hold everyone else responsible. Here's a big idea. If you're single, if you're a single guy, you're responsible for yourself. Once you get married, you're also responsible for your wife. Once you have kids, you're also responsible for your kids. To be a man is to take responsibility and to take additional responsibility. The difference between a boy and a man is not how big you are or how much meat you can shove through your colon or what you can do with the beer or whether or not you can drive a stick shift and take a punch. The difference between a man and a boy is, are you responsible? You don't have to be big to be responsible. You don't have to be strong to be responsible. You don't have to be tough to be responsible. You don't have to grow a magnificent beard to be responsible. And so what we tend to look at is, well, is that a man's man? A man's man is a man who takes responsibility. And a guy doesn't have to be big, but if he's responsible, he's a good man. A man can be a giant, he can be a Goliath, he can be incredibly strong and powerful and courageous, but if he's irresponsible, he's just a boy who can shave. He's not a man. And so for us as men, what we wanna encourage is masculine responsibility, not just masculinity, but masculine responsibility. And so what happens with Adam, God holds him uh, accountable and God holds him responsible. Um, Now, that being said, um, Adam was supposed to be the leader. And what did he not do? He didn't lead. And so in the Bible, there is a principle of singular headship, plural leadership. And this is crucial. Um, God the Father is the head of the Trinity and the Father, Son, and Spirit are plural leadership. They're equal. And they lead together, but the father is the head. That's why even the language of father and son denotes you know, that kind of relationship where there is headship. Uh, in addition, uh, the father, son, and spirit are referred to in that order because the father is the head. In the covenant of marriage, similarly, there is a singular head. In the marriage, who's the head? The husband. And the wife is the plural leader, just like the father, son, and spirit are equal in one. We learned in Genesis one and two, that the husband and the wife are equal. They're made in the image and likeness of God, male and female, and they are to be one. So it's plural leadership and singular headship. I'm trying to architect for you marriage and family because our culture knows nothing about how to do this. Instead, what our culture says is, whoever the most stubborn, domineering, and overbearing personality is can be the leader. And then we wonder why marriage doesn't work because it's not according to God's divine design. And so when it says that the husband and wife are co-leaders, what it means is this, you can't treat your wife like you treat your kids. Your wife is your peer, she is your equal. Uh, God told Adam, it's not good to be alone. You need help, she's gonna help you. The two of you need to be one. So it's plural leadership. And so, That's why the Bible says that children should honor and obey their mother and their father. Why? Because they're both leaders. So mom and dad are the leaders of the family. And then the father, the husband, he is the head of the family. This doesn't mean that he's the bully. This doesn't mean that he's domineering, overbearing. It doesn't mean that he gets to boss everybody around. It doesn't mean that he gets to be a control freak. What it means is he's supposed to treat his family the way Jesus treats his church. He's supposed to lead with love, humility, sacrifice, considering the well-being of others. And, uh, and it should be that when your kids look at their father and your wife looks at her husband, they say, you know, I, I, see, a, I see a reflection of Jesus in that guy. He's not perfect, you know, he's also a son of an Adam, you know, but he, he, he's, he, he, I do see, I see Jesus in him and I see him trying to love and lead like Jesus does. So what happens all of a sudden, as soon as Adam sins, he allows his wife to assume 
headship. And then she very quickly loses that headship to who? Satan. Now, I'm guessing that Adam and Eve didn't intend for Satan to rule their family. But that's what happens when the man, when the man fails to lead. We are in a nation that is truly in a crisis. And, it's a, and they would say it's a crisis of leadership. And I would say it's actually a crisis of masculinity. That we have men, but they don't know how to lead and they don't know how to take responsibility. So we live in a day from politics to government, to finances, to family, to faith. There is just a complete deficit of leadership. And what we are seeing is everybody making an excuse as to why things aren't happening rather than making plans to get things done. And at the same time, we have really disincentivized and demotivated a whole generation of young men. Um, there's no jobs, there's no school, uh, don't be ambitious, don't pursue any goals, stay home, watch porn, vote for socialists, they'll send you checks so you can perpetuate your adolescence. And those guys are not getting ready to grow up and to generate income. They're not getting ready to grow up and marry a woman. They're not getting ready to grow up and raise children. They're not getting ready to grow up and take responsibility for anything because they're not even taking responsibility for themselves. For those of you who are single men, the lesson of Adam is, first of all, take responsibility for you. And then once you get married, add the responsibility of your wife. And then when you add children, add the responsibility of your children. And what happens with Adam, he loses his position of headship and leadership. And there are ways that men do this. I wanna talk about, most of you men, when you hear this, for some of you, it's the first time you've ever heard like, I didn't know I was supposed to be responsible. I didn't know that things were my responsibility. I didn't know, you're new, okay? And let me say, we all start there. So um, I became a Christian at age 19 in college. And I knew nothing about responsibility, headship, leadership, marriage or parenting. I knew, in fact, everything I thought I knew was wrong, totally wrong. I grew up in a rough neighborhood down the street from a strip club. My dad was the only dad in the neighborhood. Uh, I meet a pastor's girl at 17. I start sleeping with her. I mean, I mean, let me just say, if there's hope for me, there's hope for you. Um, I don't know why God didn't just set me on fire and put me on the news, you know? And so then I go to college and I'm in college and I become a Christian and I go to a Bible teaching church. The pastor was a good man of God, taught through books of the Bible, good husband and father. And even though we're just college kids, 19, 20 years of age, he pulls us aside. He's like, all right, here, I'm gonna take you through the Bible on what it means to be a man. I'm gonna take you through the Bible on how to be a husband, take you through the Bible on how to be a father. And he did it all when I was single. And I knew Grace at the time and I wanted to marry her. So first thing he says is you, 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 need to, you need to reset your whole life. I thought, you know, a few tweaks. You know, I sleep with the pastor's daughter every other day. You know, stuff like that, minor tweaks. No, no major adjustment, that's crazy. He's like, no, you gotta stop sleeping with her. I was like, really? He's like, yeah. I was like, ah, okay, okay, I gotta, I, first of all, I need to get, see, God gave Adam dominion. First thing I needed dominion over was my pants. Right? A lot of guys are just like, where do I lead? Well, start with your drawers, get a belt. You know, just first things first. I needed to get dominion over my Southern region. And then, um, and, then I, and he's like, and you gotta generate revenue and you gotta pay your own bills. I was like, okay, I gotta go get a job. Okay, that's so I'm gonna work my way through college. And, and he said, you're not ready to be a husband. You're not ready to be a father. You got some work to do. You gotta take responsibility for yourself. You gotta, you gotta learn. I was like, okay. Now, now what that church was, it was a blessing for two reasons. There was teaching and modeling. And they're, they're teaching me like, okay, here's what men are and do. And I appreciate the teaching, but then you need the modeling because you don't know what it looks like. You know, and, and it was, I got to know men in the church who were good men, good husbands, good fathers, love the Lord. Some of them had married 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And their wife's still smiling and their kids like them and they all love Jesus. And I'm like, that looks like a great end zone. I wanna drive toward that end zone. I don't wanna be another you know, painful statistic. And so much of what we're doing here is assuming that you've either been taught nothing or what you've been taught is wrong. And what we wanna provide is some teaching for God's word and then modeling from God's men. And Genesis is gonna be incredible for us. And it starts here with Adam. 
because from this point forward, it is a 2000 year case study in marriage and family, studying the lives of men who are patriarchs, making decisions for their families and the implications that it causes for generations. So Genesis is in large part a 2000 year data study analysis of what happens when men lead and when they don't. And that's how we're going to approach Genesis. Now, that being said, Adam loses his leadership. And there are ways that men lose their leadership. Number one, you abandon it like Adam. You're there, you have the authority to lead, you have the opportunity to lead, and you don't. You just abandon it. Some of you men have done that. Now, some of you men, when you hear this, you will be conflicted because you have abandoned leadership in some areas of your life, but not others. There are some guys who are incredible performers at work and underperformers in marriage and parenting. I know some guys who they crush it at work and they're just passive and indifferent when it comes to home. They could see that their wife is unwell. Maybe she's got mental health or emotional problems or she needs some help. And they're like, I'm not dealing with that. That seems like a lot of drama and crazy over there. Or they see that the kids are struggling and they just try to, I hope mom deals with it. I hope the counselor figures it out. I hope the teacher can straighten them out. Their kids start dating people they shouldn't be dating. And dad's like, I don't really wanna get in the middle of this. This seems like a lot of time and energy. I don't like conflict. I'm busy, I'm distracted, I'm already tired. We abandon our leadership. Another way that we lose our leadership as Adam did you can lose it through being an abusive man and or an angry man. Some men are passive and they're inactive. That was Adam. Other men are domineering and overbearing and angry and they're fairly non-relational. These are the guys who are more law-based than grace-based. To, to, to rule through laws, you don't even need a relationship, just, just a lot of rules and punishment and fear. Some of you guys had a dad like that. He'd just yell at you and then leave. Uh, you're an idiot, stop doing that, do this. No. It's just angry, curt. And what happens is if you're an angry guy or a domineering guy or an unloving or an uncaring or a selfish guy, you will try to lead your family, but eventually your family totally dishonors and disrespects you. Because they're like, why should I listen to you? You're selfish, why should I listen to you? You're angry, why should I listen to you? You don't care, you just want control. It's not about care, it's about control. And eventually as those kids grow up, they uh, rebel against or completely disown or get distance from their father. And what happens is ultimately this man gets very, very lonely because in addition, his wife has scared, is scared by his anger. See, it says in Peter that we shouldn't be harsh with our wives. And part of that is that they're the weaker vessel. And what that means is physically, we can do damage, we can hurt them. If we get emotionally, upset and angry and or you're that domineering, overbearing, pushy guy and you're bigger and stronger than your wife and she's home alone with you, she's in a dangerous, vulnerable position and she feels very unsafe. The third way, it's not just um, abdicating or abandoning leadership or abusing it. You can also lose your leadership in your marriage and family by disqualifying yourself through sin. And so I'll teach this and some guys will be like, okay, I know I need to lead, but I've already messed up so bad that my wife and kids are not gonna trust me to lead. Like you can't commit adultery on your wife, come home and quote all the submission verses. I mean, you can, and then you can go to the morgue. I mean, those are options, but that's not a good idea. You can't be the dad who's been sort of angry or domineering or overbearing uh, to your kids or even maybe physically violent, which is sinful and wrong and then expect them to follow your leadership. And so let's just be honest, at certain points, we've all done at least one of these three. The passive guy abdicates his responsibility. The angry guy leads, but he leads in such a way that people don't trust him and won't follow him. And or you disqualify yourself by doing some things that undermine your moral credibility and authority. And this is where men get very conflicted because they'll come and they'll hear the Bible taught and they'll say, okay, I agree with that. But now that I look at my marriage, now that I look at my kids, now that I look at my family, it's broken and it's a mess. And I'm not sure how to start here 
rebuilding according to God's design. So let me give you some thoughts on how to regain your leadership. If you have abandoned it, abused it, or discredited yourself through sin. Number one, the most powerful thing you can do is repent. Some of you had dads, and even as I'm talking about this, we're gonna trigger some father wounds. Some of you are like, my dad was the, uh, my dad abandoned. He literally just left. I don't even know my dad. Or he just was emotionally absent and not present, never asked a question, never checked in, didn't seem to care. Others of you, like my dad was the angry guy. He did lead, but good night. He, he, he led like a, like a drill sergeant, not like a dad. And some of you like, my dad was just a terrible guy. My dad get drunk every night. My dad was a porn head. My dad cheated on my mom. My dad, you know, my dad stole from his, my dad was just a bad guy. How much power would there be if your dad came to you and with genuine humility owned it? Said, you know what? I was wrong. You know what? I am sorry. You know what? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna blame anybody else. And I'm not gonna make any excuses. Adam did, I'm not. I'm just gonna tell you, I was wrong and it did damage and I am sorry. How many of you men, if your father did that, that would begin unlocking some hope for the future of that relationship. Like I don't need a perfect dad, I just need a dad who's humble and repentant, open to change. One of the greatest gifts you can give your kids is repentance. Just, I blew it, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I didn't do it right. And what that will do, it opens up a possibility of them forgiving you and God healing things so that you can regain trust and continue to lead in love and out of healing and out of healthiness. Many men will simply say, "Uh, we're too far gone. My wife and I, we've been doing this a long time. We're stuck in a rut. Uh, You know, I'm I'm just gonna live with it. And or the guy says, if I actually apologize to her, she's gonna pummel me. She's gonna just, here comes all the bitterness, all the hurt, all the anger. You don't know what you're gonna get. The thing is, do what's right and see what God does. Like if some of you have a broken or strained relationship with an adult child, start by apologizing and repenting. And I've heard guys say, well, they don't even meet with me. Then write them a letter, send them a video. Um, Do what you need to do to articulate your acceptance of your failure. And then that allows you to seek to try to rebuild trust. And relationships are accounts. And when we do one of those three things, we abandon our responsibility, we abuse our authority, or we disqualify our moral high ground or authority through sin, what happens is we make massive withdrawals. And so what we need to do, we need to make a lot of deposits. This is apologizing, serving, maybe enduring their anger and their emotional processing and frustration. And it's saying, you know what? I've taken a lot of withdrawals. I bankrupted this account. I gotta put some deposits in. I need to be consistent. I need to be humble. I need to be loving. I need to apologize. I need to pursue you. And even if you respond poorly to me, I'm going to pour grace on you. Repenting and rebuilding trust is the beginning of starting to regain the position of leadership in your marriage and family, headship in your covenant family. Now, what happens is, let's say you do repent and you do start to rebuild trust. And let me say, this happens slowly. Trust is gained slowly, it is lost quickly. Like you can love your son for 10 years, get angry one day and hit him and you bankrupted the account. You can can love your little girl and then at 14, you scream at her and she is traumatized and you've emptied that account. Trust is gained slowly and it is lost quickly. And when you have made so many withdrawals from the account, you need to be patient in making the deposits. Before you can get that account right side up, it may take some time and effort and energy. You may need to do a lot of 
date nights with your wife. You may need to go to coffee or lunch every single week with your kid. And I was dealing with a dad recently. I said, you need to meet with your kid every week because you weren't there for years. You were just gone. You were addicted and working. You were just gone. And I, you, you weren't there. And he said, well, my kid won't call me. I was like, it's not your kid's job to call you. You're the dad. You're supposed to pursue them for relationship. You can't just sit back and say, my kids don't call me. Well, you're the dad. Like, if you didn't build a relationship with them to where they're used to being with you, you can't just wake up one day and feel hurt that you're not close. You, you gotta say, I'm the, it's, my, it's my responsibility. I'm the head. If we don't have a relationship, it's my responsibility. I'm the head. I, I gotta figure out a way to make a relationship with this adult kid. I said, well, you know, I said, schedule weekly coffee or lunch or whatever with the kid. And he said, uh, I don't think they will. I said, just tell them, I'll be, ask them, when would be a good time if we were hypothetically, not making you obligated, hypothetically, when would be a good time for us to get coffee or lunch together? And the kid said, well, I'm not agreeing to meet with you, but if so, it'd be this time, you know, this day. So the dad texted and said, okay, this time, this day, I will be at this restaurant every single week, whether you come or not. And if you don't come, I'm just gonna pray for you because I love you. And I'm gonna pray for you until one day you have lunch with me. That son didn't come for, I think it was five or six weeks in a row. And the dad talked to me, he's like, I'm wasting my time. I was like, no, you're not. Your son is testing you. He's saying, if I make it hard, am I still worth the pursuit? If I reject you, will you reject me? Five or six weeks in, the son shows up. Son said, okay, you really are here. He's like, I, yeah, I'm sorry I wasn't there. It was a sin and I, I am sorry and I regret it, but I wanna be here now and I will be here every week, whether you're here or not. And I'd love to see you. That son, since that time, has never missed a lunch with his dad. It is repenting and rebuilding trust. And then what people will do if you were supposed to be the leader and you didn't lead, they're going to test you to see if they can trust you. So for those of you who are single, write this down. The married guys will testify. Does your wife sometimes test you? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, yes. And what it is, is they're, they're saying, okay, you're supposed to be the head, but I'm not sure I can trust you. So I'm gonna test you. And if you fail the test, then I can be justified in not trusting you. But if you pass the test, maybe I will trust you. Maybe we can work toward a relationship. Your kids are gonna test you. If you've not been active and present with your kids, one of them's gonna yell at you and cuss you out just to see what you do. And if you get hurt and emotional and freak out, they're gonna say, see, that's what I thought. He's not changed, okay? I use this analogy uh, a lot. It comes from an old missionary named Amy Carmichael in a little book she uh, titled, If. So um, I've done this before, but for those of you guys who are new, what's in the bottle? Water, okay, so if I, if I hit it, what comes out? Water. People are gonna hit you to see what's in you. If anger comes out, if bitterness comes out, if selfishness comes out, if defensiveness comes out, if blame shifting comes out, if excuse making comes out, if minimalizing comes out, they're not gonna trust you. Your wife and kid, they're like, why would I follow that person? What is in you is what comes out of you when someone bumps you. You're going to be tested. Now, and even as I say this, it, it gets real silent and quiet in the room because every guy realizes, well, that's what my kid is doing. They're, they're bumping me to see what comes out of me. And they will test you until they've seen the fruit of the spirit, the life of God come out of you. Enough times they're like, okay, maybe he's changed. Maybe things can or will be different, maybe. Maybe it's not my same old dad. Maybe it's the beginning of my brand new dad. Now, if you reach a point with your, say, child, adult child or spouse, your wife, and you're like, we are just at an impasse. This thing is broken. It's just locked up. This is where you need to bring in somebody else. Don't just keep arguing. Don't just keep fighting. 
Don't just one day be the passive guy. It's like, okay, fine, you just do whatever you want and I'll just follow you. And then the next day you're like, I'm sick of this. I'm gonna rise up and be the man and it, it, get out of the crazy cycle. Go find a pastor, a mediator, a Christian counselor, a therapist, get a professional in the middle and just say, okay, here's where we're at. It's not working. And at the end of the day, if one of us wins, the other will lose. And so we're stuck in a win-lose and we wanna get to a win-win. We wanna get to a marriage where we're one and uh, we both feel hopeful um, for our future together. Now she wants to dominate me and I wanna dominate her and she wants to control me and I wanna control her. And until we get out of this, literally the enemy is literally running the family. And that's where you bring in a profession. You're like, you know what? And let me say this. Um, sometimes paying people motivates people to get their stuff figured out quicker. You may be like, I'm, I'm not gonna work on this. And they're like, 300 bucks an hour. You're like, I'm working on it. You know, it, 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 once, once, the, once, the, once the meter starts running, uh, people start acting. And so sometimes, but when, when you do this, don't just tag in your friends. Don't tag in your family. Don't tag in your allies. Bring some neutral, godly, wise counsel, professional Christians in. Um, and then be active. So to be responsible, to be the head means you are the initiator. It told us in Genesis two, that the man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. That is active, aggressive pursuit. He's not passive. He's active in pursuing his wife. And then when he has kids, he's active in pursuing his kids. I don't expect my kids to ever text me or call me. I call and I text them. I don't expect my kids to ever invite me over for dinner. I always invite them over for dinner. I don't expect my kids to get on my calendar. I expect to get on my kids' calendar. It's my job, it's my responsibility, it's my honor, quite frankly, to pursue grace, pursue the kids, each individually for relationship, and to take responsibility for our relationship. And here's the big idea. Once you connect, then you can influence. And once they know that you love them and you trust them and you're for them and you're available to them, they're more likely to invite you into the decision-making process. Um, and when it comes to making, and some of you guys are single, and some of you guys have asked, what does this have to do with me? All of us married guys and all of us dads would tell you, learn how to be responsible as soon as possible. Learn how to be responsible for yourself and, and get your mindset right about marriage and parenting before you get a wife and kids. I don't know about you, I always like to get trained on how to do something before I'm doing it. You know, before you get a wife, learn some things about marriage, that's why you're here. Before you get a kid, learn some things about being a dad. Now, when it comes to the decision-making, um, here's a couple of different thoughts. I wanna make this super practical. Because oftentimes it's a husband and a wife. He's the singular head, but they are the plural leaders. So the question is, who makes the decision? Answer, the husband and the wife make the decision and the husband takes first responsibility for it. This doesn't mean that the husband makes all the decisions. It means that he takes responsibility firstly for all the decisions. So first thing is when you, let's say you and your wife or your kids come to make a decision, the first thing is you both need to be seeking what is God's will? Okay, you're like, it's not like, what do I want? What do you want? It's like, okay, we need to pray and ask, open the word of God, what do, what do you want? Some years ago, uh, for example, I'll give you an example. Our daughter Ashley wanted to go to Costa Rica to Bible college for six months to a year as an 18 year old girl just graduating from high school. The thought of sending my little girl to another country I've never been to, to go to a place that I knew nothing about, uh, terrified me. I prayed about it, she prayed about it, we talked, we prayed, and we came to the conclusion that that was not my will for my daughter, but it was God's will for my daughter. I was like, honey, I don't want you to go. She's like, does the Lord want me to go? I was like, oh gosh, yeah. I have trained these children. So they're gonna force me to talk to God. And I talked to God and I said, honey, I, I said, I think God wants you to go to Costa Rica. 
She's like, what do you think? I was like, I don't want you to go to Costa. I don't want you to go to the store. <laughs> like, you're my little girl. I want you to stay here. And what happened was she went to Costa Rica. She healed up from a tough season. She got time with the Lord. Her faith was very strong, but it very much became her own. And then she came back. Had I held her very tight, I think I would have lost her forever. Since I held her with an open hand, I got her back. So, um, so I'm gonna spend time with her tonight after we're done. And I had lunch with her on Tuesday and I love her. It's not you as the leader getting what you want. It's you as the leader leading your family to figure out what the will of God is. And let me just say, sometimes God's will is not your will. Sometimes you work together. So then when you're making a decision, the goal is always, let's say, especially with your wife, to come to mutual agreement. The Bible told us it's not good to be alone. If you're making a decision alone and your wife is not you know, included or in agreement, you're in danger. Uh, the Bible says that a man needs help and that the wife is the helper. If you're making a decision and you're not li listening to your helper, you're in a bad place. The Bible says a prudent wife is from the Lord. And the Bible says that you're supposed to be one. So when you make decisions, you're doing so as plural leaders making the decisions together. Now, what this means is, um, is it okay for the husband to look at the wife and say, okay, on that, you make the decision. Is that okay? Totally, because let me say this, there are things your wife is smarter and wiser and better at than you. So you defer to the subject matter expert. Like when the kids were born, I realized Grace is very wise on health and nutrition and vitamins and naturopathy. And I didn't, I didn't know what to do with the kid. I'm like, I don't know, I like burritos. Do they like burritos? I don't know what to do with the kid. <laughs> I don't know what to do. She's like, well, here, feed them what I tell you. I was like, okay, that's a great idea. Cause I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, burritos, babies like that. I don't know, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. So to be uh, the husband doesn't mean you need to know everything. When your wife is a subject matter expert, that's great, let her make the decisions. But once the decision is made, do you still take responsibility for it? That's the key. You can't say, well, you made the decision, it's all your, you say, no, no, we, we made the decision. This is like a military unit. Once a decision is made, everyone owns it. Okay, so even if she gets to make the decision, we agree and I, as the head, take first responsibility. She also takes responsibility. So there's a lot of things in our marriage. I'll just look at Grace. I'm like, honey, what do you think? You're, you know a lot more about health, nutrition, relationships, emotions, feelings, all kinds of things that to me are you know, things I'm in process on. Is it okay sometimes for the husband to just make the decision? Yes, but what he should do, make sure he's in agreement with his wife. Like, uh, I'm, the, I'm the planner, architect, budget, scheduler guy. I live, in the, I live in the future. Grace doesn't, she lives in the present. So I'll go to her and I'll be like, okay, how about the calendar? How about the budget? She's like, I don't care. She's like, we've been together 30 years. You know what I like and don't like. Just put it on the calendar and tell me. And if I have any issues, I'll let you know. Okay, great. So I'll put the whole calendar together. I'll put the budget together. And then I let her know, because we keep no secrets. Everything's overt. Okay, honey, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. Anything you want me to adjust, any questions, anything I can explain, anything you need to know. It's just, yeah, tweak this, do that. You know, this looks good, all good to go. Great, okay. Some things, we talk about everything. We own everything. Some things, you make the decisions. Sometimes I make the decision, but there are some decisions in marriage, true or false, you just can't come to agreement on. You ever had that? Is it just me? You're like, you're so what I would say then is the relationship is more important than the issue. Because what some guys will do, they'll come down real heavy handed and they'll make a decision, but they'll break the relationship. And let me say that the relationship is a, it's a priority. Very, 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 very rarely is there a decision that's more important than the relationship. I mean, we're talking life and death decisions. Most decisions, the relationship is more important than the decision. And on those, you need to come to agreement. Because even if you agree on what is to be done, you can't move forward until you both agree to do what you're agreeing to do. So I'll give you an example. Some years ago, we were looking at moving to Arizona and I was ready to go. 
And my wife was not. I was like, honey, I think we should move. And, uh, and she's like, I don't. I was like, well, that's a problem. Because there's, like there's not like a middle ground. Like, well, you know, you want to live in Washington. I want to live in Arizona. So like, uh, we both moved to Portland. I don't know. You know, there's no, we are, we are, we are different ends of the country. This is a big, and this is a big decision where the kids go to school, where we work, what we do. I mean, everything hinges on this decision. And so I start talking to Grace and she's telling me in a very loving and kind way. She said, uh, don't try and sell me. I don't know if you know this, I can sell. <laughs> I can create an argument and I can, I get evidence, lines of reasoning, I have rebuttals, I have counter arguments. And she's like, don't sell me. She's like, I need to hear from the Lord and I'm not sure that we should move. Answer, I need to wait for my wife to, hear from the Lord. Um, because if we are going to move across the country, uh, she's going to need to agree that this is God's will. And we've got a lot of work together to make this work for five kids. I mean, this is, big, this is a big deal. I waited, and what I told her was, I said, I will pray for you. I will not bring it up. I will not push you. I gave you my case. I'll just, you know, I'll just rest my case. And I'm just gonna pray. And anytime you wanna talk about it, you bring it up. I'll answer questions, whatever you do, whatever you need to do, process, reason. Six months, six months. She came to me, she said, I heard from the Lord. I was like, okay, great, what'd he say? She said, I think we should go to Arizona. I was like, I knew that, I knew it. <laughs> she, said, she said, I needed to know that this was God's will for our family because the amount of work and the opportunity for division is so great, I needed to be sure. Answer? Yeah, because the relationship is so important. So we agreed on that decision and we've never looked back and God's been very, very gracious to us on that. So let me close with this. Adam didn't lead. Everything is broken as a result. If we don't lead, everything is broken as a result. There are two, let me ask you this question. If you don't lead in your family, will someone else step up and try and fill that vacuum? How many of you grew up in a home where you were the child, but you felt like a parent? Because the dad wasn't leading and there was a leadership vacuum and you were the oldest kid, or maybe you were the most responsible kid, so you tried to fill it. That's how you create a broken, dysfunctional family system. If you don't lead as the husband and father, someone will try and fill that hole and lead. I'm gonna ask you a brutal, painful question that could change your life and legacy. If you don't lead and various people nominate themselves to lead, almost invariably, which kind of person ends up being the de facto leader? The least healthy. The most broken, traumatized, damaged, unhealed, fearful, controlling person becomes the leader. Think of your family. Who was the most dominating personality? Who did everybody work around? Who did everybody accommodate? Who did everybody make excuses for? The most broken, traumatized, unhealed, unhealthy, unwell person became the de facto head of the home. Okay, true or false, this is what happens. It's true. The most angry, the most broken, the most fearful, the most traumatized, the person who needs the most professional help becomes the de facto head of the home. And eventually they are displaced by someone else. His name is? Satan. And this is how one man's failure to lead leads to generational curses and generational brokenness and generational trauma. And the only way out is to stop being under Adam and start being under Jesus Christ. And what I love about Jesus when he went to the cross, he took responsibility for me. 
He took responsibility for me. All my sin was my sin. All my failures were my failures. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. And he died to take responsibility for everything that I did wrong. And as a result, he took me from being under his, the headship of Adam and he placed me under his headship. Now there is grace and there's love and there's the Holy Spirit and there's mercy and there's blessing and there's the word of God and there's life. I really love you, I really do. The reason I'm here every week, you matter. Your wives matter, your kids matter, your grandkids matter. Generations of people with your last name that haven't even visited the planet yet are coming. And I want them to be born under Jesus, not under Adam. And I want them to look at the decisions that you and I make and say they weren't perfect, but there was progress and there was blessing instead of cursing. And here's what I'm telling you. If we learn anything from Genesis 3, I'll just say this. If you don't lead, Satan will. Genesis 3. Father, thank you for a sobering opportunity to teach. Um, Lord, I, I hope it's not discouraging or condemning, but I hope it is sobering and enlightening. God, so many of us grew up in broken, dysfunctional family systems, and we don't want to be bitter against our parents. We don't want to uh, harbor resentment. We don't wanna give the enemy a foothold through bitterness, but we wanna have our eyes open and say, is there a better way to do life? What does it look like to be a man? What does it look like to be a responsible man, to be a, a godly husband, a godly father, uh, to be a blessing and not a curse and to, to not give the enemy a foothold in generations of our family? I pray against the enemy of servants, their works and effects, and to Satan and his minions who keep coming after marriages and families as they always have. And we say the Lord rebuke you in Jesus' name. And God, I pray especially for the older men who hear this, that they wouldn't be discouraged. It's never too late to repent and rebuild. And God, for the young men, that they would seek wisdom to do it right the first time. And that they would really take this opportunity to learn how to take responsibility in a way that is masculine in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for letting me ramble. This is the end of today's sermon. We hope today's word encourages you to be stronger men of Christ. If you live in Arizona, I invite you to attend Real Men. We meet every Wednesday night here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. For more resources like this, visit realfaith.com. And remember, it's all about Jesus.